readings from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We're now looking at the third church that is being addressed. To the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Here ends the second reading. Thank you, uh, Gita, for reading God's word. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would encourage us in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning, uh, if you are a visitor here today, uh, and for those who are regular here as well, uh, we continue our study on the book of Revelation, and in particular, we're looking at the seven churches mentioned in the book. Uh, Jesus' letters to the seven churches is applicable, as we mentioned previously, to the church of every age, with the number seven symbolic of completeness. Of the seven churches, only two of them received no warning or condemnation, and these churches are Smyrna and Philadelphia. As we've already previously noted, when these letters were written, it was during a time when the Roman Empire wanted, wanted the people they ruled to worship the Roman Emperor. And this created a problem both for the Jews and to the Christians. The Jews and Christians had been taught that there was only one God and worshipping anyone or anything other than God was idolatry. But the Jews had received permission to refrain from worshipping the Roman Emperor because they were seen as an ethnic group. But this was not the case for the Christians because people from various nations and races were becoming converts to Christianity. And so they had to pay a heavy price for following Jesus. Last week, we looked at the second of the seven churches, the church at Smyrna. The church in Smyrna, as we noted, was a suffering church on account of their faith in Jesus. And the Lord comforted and encouraged this church in Smyrna by reminding them of the crown of life that awaited to all of those who remained faithful and that they would be delivered from the second death. And this morning, we will focus our thoughts on the third church, the church in Pergamum. If you have your Bibles, Revelation is an easy book to find. It's the last book in the Bible. 
So if you have it, please uh, keep your Bibles open as well. Or your phones, it's fine, so long as you're not texting. Well, well, what do we know about Pergamum? Uh, Pergamum was a large city situated approximately maybe 88 kilometers uh, north of Smyrna. Today it is called Bergama in western Turkey. Pergamum was the seat of Roman government for the province. It was the center of the imperial cult where the emperor had his civil servants working there. We might say that it was similar to, to Canberra. Uh, it's the political hub, if you want to call it that way. And it was the first place to erect a temple for, to Caesar Augustus. Pergamum was also the site of a great library said to contain more than 200,000 parchment scrolls. In fact, the name Pergamum comes from the same word as parchment, because this is where parchment was first invented. So this was a well-cultured and bustling city, and in this city, a church is planted for Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at this passage under three headings, which is the commendation that we have in the passage, there's the compromise that Jesus speaks of, and there is the counsel that Jesus gives to this church. So there's a commendation, there's the compromise that Jesus addresses here, and there's the counsel that he gives. Let's notice, let's look at the commendation that Jesus gives here. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, verses 12 and 13, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Friends, the letter is addressed to the angel, that is, to the minister of the church, to the pastor of the church. This must be a scary thing, isn't it, to get a letter direct from Jesus to the pastor of a church. I mean, man, I, I, I would not know what to do with it. I'd be just scared so much because what would this letter be like? And so Jesus writes this to the pastor. To the minister. And notice how he is described here. Jesus is described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. It could be translated from the Greek in the original. The one who has the word, the double-edged one, the sharp one. And so, let me refer to Revelation 1.16. We saw this last time, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So that is the description of Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword. Now this is not the sword that we ought to take and fight as it were. No, no, this is the sword of God's word. That Jesus says, he's never asked us to take a sword and go into arms. Never. We are called to turn the other cheek, aren't we? We are asked to show love to our enemies. The gospel is radically different. Christ is radically different when we compare him with other religious leaders. But here, this, the, the, the double-edged 
sword is the word. It's the word that brings life. And it's the word that brings judgment. It's the word that speaks love. And it's the word that speaks justice. And it is powerful. Because it comes from Christ. And notice friends. He says to this church. In fact to all of us. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know where you are placed. (laughs) Think about that. He knows where we are individually. And he knows where his church is collectively. And so when people ask me. Where is your church? I know, I know the sentiment that's been asked. I need to say, well, it is the Lord's church that meets on the corner of Canterbury and Warrigal Road. Warrigal Roads, right? It is at this intersection. It's a well-known intersection, is it not? People stop their cars. They read what's on our boards. They go past this place. But this church... God says, the Lord says, I know where you dwell. I know. I know your location. You're not too far from the city. You live in the greatest city, according to many people in, in, in the world. We might, the people from Sydney and other places might not agree, but uh, we live in Melbourne, the great sporting city. I know your location, Jesus says. I know where you live. He's fully aware of what is going on in his church. There is nothing that can be hidden from his church. He knows everything that goes on here. I've, I've told the elders that, you know, the Lord knows what goes on in this church. There's nothing that we can hide. Nonsense. We think that we can hide things. No, 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 no. Christ knows everything that goes on. Everything is transparent. Everything should be open before him. Nothing to be hidden. He knows. He knows where we live. He knows what goes on. He comes with the double-edged sword in his mouth. A word of peace. A word of love. A word of grace. But a word of discipline. And a word of justice to the church and the world. And he's fully aware. And notice, and Jesus says, I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. And where Satan lives. Well, what's the meaning of Satan's throne? You see, the image of a throne was appropriate to this city because Pergamum was known as the religious center and many, with many shrines for pagan worship. As I said, it was the first city to build a temple to a Roman ruler, Augustus. And the city referred itself to the temple warden or a temple dedicated to Caesar worship. Now, in addition to this, friends, there were various shrines in this city. There was a shrine dedicated to Zeus, the god of the sky. It was 120 feet long, about 60 feet high, and was dedicated for the worship of the god of the sky, Zeus. There was another shrine dedicated to Athena, the goddess of wisdom and courage. That was in the city. There was another shrine was dedicated to Dionysus, the god of fertility and wine. But most of all, Pergamum was known for the worship of the goddess named Asplius, I think. That's how you might pronounce it. <laughs> right? Or, or Asplius Sote, which is savior. And that was this, this god. 
He was the God of healing. And therefore attracted many people who were suffering with many sicknesses. And there was a, he was the serpent God of healing. And its symbol was a staff with a snake curled around it. And the serpent curled around the staff was the city emblem. And they worshipped the snake and believed that he had the power to heal. And this symbol as a snake is a medical emblem. As it is, as it is today as well. And so as we can see, this city was devoted to all of these shrines. And people worshipped all of these statues. They worshipped all of these so-called gods. The fertility god, the sky god, the god of courage, the god of healing through the snake. And right there in that city in Pergamum, in the midst of these statues and altars, the city was surrounded by pagan culture. Satan had a free reign and influence in the city. And so Jesus says, Satan has his throne there. I know that Satan has his throne there and dwells in the city. Now, does Satan literally dwell in the city? That's not the idea there, I believe. But the idea is his presence, his influence was upon that city. And this Satan's throne stands in direct opposition to the heavenly throne in the great battle for the lordship and of Jesus Christ and truth in this world. I know where you dwell. And I want to commend you for that. Friends, we live in a great city, don't we? We live in a great nation. But you put on your TVs, you read the newspapers, what shocking news we hear these days. Horrific news of kids uh, abusing their parents. Did you read the, the, the local leader newspaper this past week? Any White House people here? What was the first page on it? Elderly. The, uh, the, the silent majority who have been abused. Grandparents and children are, and parents are being abused by their children. I read that and I thought, how could this be? The silent sufferers, grandparents, parents, being abused by their children. Can you believe that? It's happening. We have people being killed by the sons killing their mothers. It's a shocking we live in, a, in, in, in this world and, 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 and the social engineering that goes behind the scenes is to push, push Christianity out of the scene. Push the church out of the scene. Push Jesus out of the scene. Because we've got the solution. You see, we are it. Man is self-sufficient. We've got the answers to our social problems. We can fix it by our social engineering. So says the modern world. Can we? The problem is me. The problem is you. The problem is with our heart. The problem is our sin. So we can't even talk today about sin. You see, Jesus says, I know the struggles you're going through because our battle for truth is against the powers of darkness. And while the church proclaims truth, Satan opposes this all the time. And so we have a battle on our hands. Jesus says, I want to commend you. I will commend this church for remaining true, for holding fast 
to his name. They refused to renounce their faith in him. They refused to confess any other than Jesus. But there was a price to pay. You look at 13b. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There was a believer named Antipas in the church of Pagamum. Antipas would not compromise for his faith in Jesus and as a result he was put to death. We don't know much about this person. Nothing. But his name is in the Bible. <laughs> right? Because he had a love for Jesus. My faithful witness. That's what Jesus says about Antipas. The same eulogy issues of Jesus. You see, Antipas modeled faithful Christian witness. And the congregation followed his lead. And Jesus praised him for remaining faithful. And praised the congregation for remaining faithful to his name. What a wonderful testimony of this man, of this person, Antipas. What would Jesus say of you and me? This morning, my faithful witness. What will he say at the end of our lives? Well done, good and successful servant. Is that what the Bible says? You sure? Come on. That's success, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. I was reading about Antipas, and I won't go into the story as to how he was killed. It, it was a horrific way in which he was killed. And I'm not going to exactly say that this morning, how, he, how that happened to him. But he stood his ground. You see, and then we have the compromise. While Jesus praised this church, he confronted them on a problem in the church. He knows everything that goes on in the church. And when he looked beneath the surface of this church, there was a problem. Everything looked fine. People were faithful, but there was a problem here in this church. And, and this is a dangerous thing, friends, that was going on. Look at your Bibles, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Baal had to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. That's the problem. You see, some of the people in this church had compromised their faith by engaging in practices that were not consistent with their profession of faith in Jesus. What was going on? We see the compromise. is explained with references to the compromise in relationship that Balaam had with Israel. Now this morning. I won't read the entire story, but you can read the accounts in the book of Numbers. Look at Numbers 23 onwards, and you'll see Balaam there. Balak, I'll give you a brief uh, description here. Balak was the king of Moab. He wanted Israel to be destroyed. We read, we read of King Balak of Moab who could not conquer Israel with military force, and so he paid a prophet by the name of Balaam to curse Israel. He sent his team and said, here's money, here are the fees, you're a prophet of God, come and curse Israel. Balaam was a strange prophet. <laughs> it's hard to put him in the, in, in, in the line of prophecy, but he was a strange prophet. Come now, curse these people for me. And each time Balaam tried to pronounce a curse on Israel, God stopped him. 
Alright? And one such occasion was when God stopped Balaam on his way to deal with the request of Balak and God did not let his donkey proceed. So Balaam got on his donkey, he went on his ride on the donkey and as the donkey was going, God put an angel in front of the donkey and the donkey moved aside and knocked Balaam's leg on the wall. And Balaam got so angry that he thought, I'll strike the donkey. And guess what happened, friends? <laughs> then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. <laughs> right? And she said to Balaam, this is the donkey. Donkey is talking. I wonder what Balaam would have thought for a moment. I would have thought, wow, if my dog Toby would talk back to me, I'll, I'll fall flat. I think, wow, what's happening here? What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And then the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey? On which you have ridden all your life, long this, to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. The donkey, the donkey had to speak to the prophet. And the prophet had to listen to his donkey. Is there a moral in the story there? You worked it out. <laughs> Alright. So Numbers 25. So 31. Balaam advised. You know what Balaam said to Balak? You know Balak? You can't win militarily. I'm going to give you a strategy. And the strategy is to lure the Israelites into apostasy by enticing them with Moabite women to share pagan sacrificial meals and to seduce the Israelites to sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. And so Balak took the advice from Balaam the prophet and he implemented his plan to cause the people of Israel to sin against God. And the Israelites were invited to take part in the pagan festivities, to worship to idols. The women came in, and the men got enticed, and there was sexual immorality that was going in, and sexual immorality had crept into the church, idol worship had crept into the church, and Jesus says, stop. Now, some of you, he says, are entertaining Balak, entertaining Balaam and his teachings. And you're entertaining the Nicolaitans. We came across this group. We don't know exactly the, the nature of this group. Probably the guy who started it was Nicholas. They were called Nicolaitans. They were enticing Christians to compromise their faith by committing spiritual adultery, sexual immorality. Friends, that's the danger for us all. We live in a world, don't we? We get out of this place and we live in the world. <laughs> but when the world comes into the church, but when the world comes into our hearts, is it easy to compromise? I tell you what, friends. It doesn't take much to compromise, right? It doesn't take much to compromise. Just a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of worldliness. One foot in the Lord's camp, the other foot in the world. One foot here, oh, I have the best of both worlds. You see that? I can be going from this world into that world. Like I'm swaying this morning. It's not, it's not difficult. Any one of us can face those things. You are working in the workplace. What about the challenges in your workplace? 
Are you called to compromise as a Christian, as a, as a Christian businessman, as a Christian nurse, as a Christian teacher, as a university student? Do they look at you and say, that's a rare specimen. He doesn't have sex before marriage. What's wrong with you, man? What's wrong with you, woman? What world are you living in? You see, the, the, the teaching that is going to be taught to our kids today, being sponsored by government, our taxes, to say that there is no gender differences anymore. It's no male and female, we are all, I don't know what. And so that is the kind of world that our children, your grandchildren, are going to be growing up in, in this world. And that's the challenge to the church. To stand up. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Because we have the responsibility to our Lord. Because God wants the best for you. Is that correct? When he says sex before, no sex before marriage, because he loves you as a Christian. He wants your body to be dedicated to him because our bodies don't belong to ourselves. It belongs to him. I mean, sexual immorality has crept into this church and the degradation of their bodies and with spiritual idolatry of worshipping things that they shouldn't have done and offering things to idols and that has crept into the church and Jesus says to this church, I have something against you because some of you are following the practices of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. Wake up to the danger. Of this compromising attitude. This is Satan's strategy. And so we need to be open about it. We need to talk about the struggles. That you and I face. In the Christian life. I often think of our young people. At university. We heard this morning a wonderful testimony from Miles. Did you pick that up earlier? What he said and his struggles with pornography. It's an unspoken thing today in the church. We don't talk about sex. We don't talk about pornography. Oh my goodness me. The church we shouldn't do that that's, the, that's a taboo subject no 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 we of all people should be able to give a wonderful biblical explanation of sexuality can we not God made male and female God gave the gift of sex within marriage God has called us as Christians to live our lives for his glory our bodies belong to Christ we sacrifice our lives as in terms of worship to the living God and that is a struggle. And I tell you what, my dear friends, you and I might be struggling with sexual sins this morning and we won't want to talk about it because we think, no. I want to encourage us. If you're going through a struggle, you're going through a battle, meet with somebody, talk through those issues. I have a brother in Christ, one of my ministers, he'll ask me, so what have you been watching, Chris? <laughs> what have you been reading? What's happening with your... Life confrontations. When I meet with my good brother John, we talk about our lives. How are we going? How are we serving Christ? How are we serving his body? I'm open. I have guys here that will tell me. I say to them, tell me where I need to change. I meet with some brothers. I meet here and outside of the church. Because it is hard. It is tough. Let's be honest about it. That's the strategy of Satan, to infiltrate the church with false 
compromising teaching contrary to God's word. And notice the counsel that Jesus gives here. As we close this letter here this morning. Repent. Repent, he says. And notice the reward. This church, he says, repent. And what is repentance, friends? Repentance is me coming before God and crying out to him and saying, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. It is not blaming everyone else for my sin. Correct? It's, it's his fault. It's their fault. It's my wife's fault. It's never my fault. I'm because I am Mr. Perfect. I don't sin. It's never my fault. That, that's, what, that's what Adam did at the start. He said, God, it's not my problem. Can you see Eve? No, nothing for the ladies here this morning, right? Eve, you know, I was quite alright, you gave me Eve. No, not exactly like that. She's the one who caused me to, to sin. Of course not. Adam was responsible, equally. And so, friends, we have to acknowledge, each one of us, before God, my own sin. Don't pass your blame to others. And blame everyone else but yourself, because... You have not come to a point of repentance if you are blaming everyone else but yourself. Unless you come before God and I come before God and cry before Him and say, Lord, I have sinned against whom? You. Forgive me. Forgive me. Cleanse my heart, Lord. Search my rotten heart. See what's the darkness that goes on here. All the filth that is in this heart. The words that I speak, the thoughts that I think. You know it all. Cleanse me. Repent, Jesus says. Don't compromise. Repent. You're going through a particular sin. You repent of that. I need to repent. That is turn right about turn. No more to that. It's finished. Whatever that is. I don't know. And notice the reward. Hidden manna and a white stone and a name. Three things. Very quickly. To those who hear Jesus' words, repent from their sin. Turn away from their compromising tendencies. Remain faithful to Jesus until then. He will give to them hidden manna. The manna was what God gave to feed his wandering people in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus. It was sustenance for the people. It finds its culmination in Christ who is the bread of life. Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers, John chapter 6, ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat, one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The promise is guaranteed life, friends. That is, we feed on Christ spiritually, and we have spiritual blessings. That is, as we trust Jesus, and He pours out His blessings upon your life, and you see Him at work in you, what a joy it is. Jesus says, come, I give you real sustenance. Your life, you get a spring in your step. Why? Not because uh, you might have it physically as well, but I'm talking about spiritually. Right? God gives and he takes this, this broken person and he says, eat of this bread. Because as you eat of this bread, you have life. You have abundant life. You have the powerful presence of me in your life. I have died for you. I am the life for you. I have given you everything. 
What a blessing is that? What a blessing. We heard a testimony this morning of Christ's work in Miles' life and others here this morning. And he gives also a white stone. Now, so many interpretations on this white stone and it's a mystery. I must admit it's a mystery. Others might know more about the white stone than me, but I've read and it's a mystery. And keep it at that way. He said that white stones were associated with votes of acquittal in ancient courts and black stones were given for the guilty verdicts. White is a symbol of purity. And this white, I think, represents, in one sense, a reminder that the blood of the Lamb was shed. So white stone reminds us justification and forgiveness for our sins in Christ. He is our, unri- he is our righteousness and we are clean. We have a clean slate with God, justified by the Father, cleansed by His precious blood of Jesus, and all the dark sin stains in my life is taken away, and it is made white. Pure. Pure. That when God sees you, He sees you as a white stone, with no imperfections in Christ. And then, He says this, the blood of Jesus that makes us pure, does he he not? And he gives a new name written on the white stone. What is this new name? The point is, I don't think anyone really knows. The point is that it will be a new name that identifies each of his people and one that is private and personal. What a motivation, friends. What a motivation to live for Jesus. What a motivation not to compromise. What What a motivation to hold fast. To Jesus and his word. The church faces incredible pressure today to conform and to compromise. We face the pressures from outside and within. In some ways, some of us may be guilty of compromise. Some of us may have adopted the culture's view. Today is a day to repent. If that is you. And for us as a church, I pray that St. Stephen's will be a church that is always driven By the word of God. That it will not compromise. It cannot compromise. I cannot be a minister of a church. I'm telling you that seriously. That would compromise the word of God. I want to thank the Lord. That we have a church that loves the word. And this word is the governing body. Is the governing principle for this church. Nothing else. It's not about what I like and what I think and what is good and etc. It comes from this word. And Christ comes with a two-edged sword in his mouth. To love and to give peace. To give grace and strength. But also to discipline and to give justice. And I don't want to be under the justice and the discipline of Christ. Because it might be a dangerous pathway for you. You think about that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We confess this morning, we we are not perfect. Many times we are lured by this world. We fall in and out of, in some ways, with the worldly challenges. I just pray, Lord, that you help us to examine ourselves regularly. That you keep this church, a church that does not compromise your word. A church that honors Jesus Christ. A church that loves Christ and a church that is aware of who Jesus is. In his name, Amen.